Hey booze, welcome to Crime and Spirits, your one-stop shop for handcrafted cocktails, spooky stories, and all things true crime. I am your resident bartender, Suze, and I'll be teaching you all a new drink recipe at the beginning of each of our episodes. And I'm Bree, drinker of the drinks, and I write the stories we tell. So, what should you expect while listening to us? Well, good question. There's going to be some swearing. Oh, a lot of swearing. Probably some rambling. Definitely rambling. And most likely a lot of off-topic pop culture references. We specialize in Bob's Burgers and maybe Always Sunny. Definitely. But what do you want from us? We're going to be drinking. And hopefully you will be too. So come hang out with us each week. And if you want to spend more time with us, check out the description for the link to all of our socials. Let's buckle up buttercups and sip tight. Let's get into it. Hello, everybody. It's your girls. I'm Brie. And I'm Suze. And you guys, this is the 20th episode yeah. of Crime and Spirits. We made it. We made it to 20. When she sent me the email with happy 20th episode, I was like, wait, really? I know. I it can c- hardly believe it. I know. It came up quick. I'm very excited. I'm very proud of us, yeah, too. Yeah, me too. So thanks for listening, guys, through 20 whole episodes. Yeah, for sure. We really appreciate you. And we really just want to thank you for hanging out with us while we share a spooky story and enjoy a delicious cocktail together each week. It means the world to us. We love it. So that being said, we're going to get right into things because yeah. I I really like the case. I did not know... I barely knew anything about this case yeah. when I started researching it. So it has been a lot of fun because there was a lot that I did not know. Yeah, which <laughs> hasn't happened yet because usually we either are on the same level or you know more than right, I do. So right. it's been, I'm excited. So tonight we're going to be talking about the mystery man known as D.B. Cooper. He is notorious for hijacking a plane back in the 70s and just dis- disappearing off the face of the earth. This is a case that doesn't necessarily have, like, a satisfying ending because we don't really know who this man was or, like, what his motives were or why any of this happened, really. Nothing. (laughs) It remained an active case all the way up to 2016. And it remains the only unsolved case of air piracy in commercial aviation history. So this is going to be a wild ride. But before we get buckled up, we need cocktails. So we are going classic 70s. Yeah. We're going uh, one spirit with one mixer. We're not going to do anything fancy, mostly because this is the drink that D.B. Cooper ordered on the plane. Yes. So let me start with, it's bourbon is our liquor. Yes. I bought Jim Beam. I got on Reddit to see what D.B. Cooper may or may not have ordered. God help your soul. Nobody had any idea. And if they did have some ideas, they were all batshit crazy. So I was talking to my friend who works in the airline industry about what bourbon they currently sell. Because, you know, airplane bottles weren't a thing in the 70s. It was just, here's a bunch of booze. Here's an actual glass and enjoy everything. So... They currently serve Buffalo Trace, which is pretty good. I've had it on airplanes before, la-di-da. But in our instance, I wanted to kind of like sort of go a throwback kind of thing. Yeah. So I was like, what bourbons do you think would have been served on airlines in the 70s? And his suggestion was Jim Beam. I mean, that's a staple. It is. As far as bourbons go. It's been around for a very long time. So it feels appropriate. And I like Jim Beam. I do drink it, so... I'm totally comfortable with this beverage. So literally all we're doing is taking our happy little rocks glass, Mm -hmm. you know, the short one, fill it up with ice, 
pour in two ounces of your Jim Beam or whatever bourbon you want. If you want to try Buffalo Trace, by all means, go for it. But like I said, we're trying to do like throwbacks. Yeah. Throwbacks. And so. Jim Beam is probably, you said a little lower shelf technically, right? It so is. it's a little bit mm-hmm. more economy friendly. Yeah. Because I feel like back in the 70s, people would honestly drink paint thinner. I mean, you're... Because, like, have you ever heard of a Harvey Wallbanger? I have. So, uh, do you know what's in it? I do not. So, it is gin, it is orange juice, and then you float Galliano on top of it. Which, if you've ever been to any bar, everybody's got it. It's the big, long, triangle-shaped bottle with bright yellow liqueur in it. Smells like cough syrup, tastes like... I'm assuming what dirt would taste like if you're eating dirt. I think that the only reason I know that drink exists is because of the cartoon Archer. That's hilarious. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's my reference for it. Being a bartender, <laughs> nobody's ever asked me for Harvey Wallbanger, but I had regulars who used to live in California in the 70s, and they said, oh my god, we used to love Harvey Wallbangers, and I was like, ew, why did you ever <laughs> want to drink that? Why would you admit to that? Yes. So anyways, back to DB. We're doing Jim Beam and Club Soda. Two ounces of Jim Beam, three ounces of Club Soda. That is literally it. Stick a straw oh, in dang. it, swirl it around. It is a classic cocktail. Oh. Not bad, though. That's pretty good. Because when I was on Reddit, people were like, well, maybe the Club Soda, maybe by soda they meant Sprite. And I was talking to my friend in the airline, and he was like, nope, people didn't do that back then. I'm, it was like, yeah. here's your cup of booze. Right. If you wanted something in it, it was water or club soda. There wasn't like, I'll have it with Diet Coke or, you know what I mean? There this was none of that. Not as bourbony. <laughs> yeah, I definitely thought it was going to be like way more of like a stronger like alcohol taste. That's why, and I like Jim Beam. I like the flavor yeah. of it. Say what you will about Jim Beam. I know it's not super fancy, but I didn't want to buy like a $60 bottle of bourbon and then put yeah. club soda in it. Those fancy bourbons are better with just an ice cube in it. Mm. Or just neat. To just enjoy. Yes. But, so, we're sipping on Jim Beam and Club Soda today, y'all. I like it. I approve. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. (laughs) All right. So, our story begins on Thanksgiving Eve of 1971. On November 24th, a man named Dan Cooper purchased a one-way ticket with Northwest Orient Airlines. He paid $20 in cash, which... That's Whoa. bananas, right? <laughs> For a 30-minute trip. He was going from Portland International Airport to Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. They called it SeaTac, but that just sounds really weird to me. It makes oh. me think of sea or something, so I don't <laughs> like know. jet ski? Yes. I don't know why. That's funny. That's, like, that's hilarious. Um, so the flight was th- flight 305. It carried 36 passengers and six crew members, which consisted of a pilot, the first officer, a flight engineer, and three flight attendants. When Cooper boarded the Boeing 727, he was carrying a briefcase and a brown paper bag with him. He's described as a white male who was likely in his mid-40s. He was wearing a business suit that was either brown or black, a black raincoat, a thin black tie, and a white dress shirt. So like he basically looked like every a other dude. <laughs> uh, to me, he men in black. Yes. Oh. Honestly, mm-hmm. my could have. <laughs> right? Oh, the God, those were abundant. Phew. Um, so Dan Cooper was assigned seat 18E, which was in the last row of seats on the plane. He ordered his bourbon and soda, which we're get, we're just gonna say Jim Beam and soda. Yeah. Um, with one of the flight attendants, and he settled in for the short flight because to me that's like 30 minutes is not eerie to Chicago. Like you're yeah. up in the air for a minute, and then you're. Almost landing. You know From what I mean? North Carolina 
to Jacksonville was 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that literally felt like nothing. Yep. And I am claustrophobic and terrified of heights, so. Yep. <laughs> and this, I mean, back then I would not have ridden in a plane. Mm. But whatever blows your hair back. Um, so they departed from Portland right on time, 2.50 p.m. Um, Pacific Standard Time. Sitting in the jump seat of the plane, which is basically just a tiny little seat for a flight attendant or for overflow seating, it folds basically out of the wall. I was wondering, like, what the purpose of that was. Yeah, um, I have ridden next to a flight attendant riding in a jump seat before, and it is basically, like, shoulder to shoulder now. So I can't imagine what it was like back then. Everything was ginormous, so who Mm. knows? Um, Florence Schaffner was sitting in the jump seat, so she'll play a pretty major role. Oh, yeah. Uh, not too long after takeoff, Cooper hands her a note. Now, back then, apparently, everybody was pretty sleazy. She didn't pay too much attention to the note. She was used to businessmen basically like, here's my number. Here's here's my my hotel hotel info, my hotel key, whatever. Um, so she didn't bother to even look at the note, and she just put it in her purse, like, nah, whatever, like, I'll just throw it away later kind of thing. <laughs> I love that she was just like, oh, okay, and... Thank you so much. Ignoring that. <laughs> and that actually did not make Cooper very happy. Uh, he waved Florence down again, so she heads over, <laughs> and that's when he tells her the following, quote, Miss, you'd better take a look at that note. I have a bomb. I just End quote. love the way that he's like, um, excuse me, madam. I have a bomb right? in my briefcase. You might like, want to read you, that note. What are you doing ignoring <laughs> How dare you? My, my note to you. Um, obviously, Florence is like, whoa, hold up. <laughs> and <laughs> she takes this much more seriously, like, this time around. And she goes to get the note so she can read it herself. And the exact wording is unfortunately unknown. Uh, what we do know is that the note was printed in neat all capital letters, and it was written with an ink felt tip pen, which seemed to have stuck out to Florence. She would later recall that the note said something along the lines of, like, I have a bomb, and please sit in the seat next to me. Which she does, and she quietly asks to see the bomb for herself. Which Great lady, that takes some cojones. I, I, <laughs> right? I, I feel like my instinct would also be like, well, like... Do you really? I mean, you like, know. bullshit. Now. <laughs> well, let me see it. <laughs> you can't even say, like, any word that even sounds remotely bomb, like bomb, 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 bomb. <laughs> in an airport without getting tackled. Right. But, like, back then. Oh, there were no rules. No. You could smoke and walk around and do whatever $20 for a plane ticket? That, too. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so... She sits down. She asks to see the bomb. He opens the briefcase ever so slightly. And reveals to Florence what was inside. And she sees a large battery pack and eight red cylinders. And they were arranged in two rows of four with a wire attached to them. And she assumes that this is dynamite and that Cooper does, in fact, have a bomb. Which, and this is all her recollections, so I'm sure it's true. But who knows if it was paper towel tubes painted red or you know what I mean nobody knows it leads me to believe and you know for those of you familiar with the story because it's one of the most like pretty well known like unsolved cases out there like I feel like it's safe to assume that he didn't open the briefcase very wide on purpose like I feel like that was very intentional oh absolutely because he was trying to like hide it pull something (laughs) over on them yeah right especially back then it's so it's obviously like much easier to do then than it is now right So after this little thing goes down, Cooper shuts his briefcase and he begins to give Florence basically like all of his demands, which was sort of a long list. Oh, yeah. She proceeds to write them all down and heads directly to the cockpit with said list. 
Uh, once the captain is made aware of what was going on, he relays that list of demands to flight operations in Minnesota. Now, I don't know. It didn't really specify if that was, like, their home base or... Yeah, I tried to... Because that seems pretty far away from Portland and Seattle. Yeah. But I was like, mm, maybe that was just the central location back then. I don't know how aviation works in that regard. Yeah. I did try to do, like, a little surface search just to see if I could find anything, and I couldn't... It's almost like a lot of the records from those companies that folded up back mm -hmm. then, all those airlines just don't really exist yeah. anymore. So That's a very fair point. It was hard to find some stuff that I wanted to find more info well, on. Well, and I can't imagine... Uh, we should have looked into like the history of the company a little bit more. Maybe we'll do it like after the fact. But I would be curious to know how long this specific airline lasted. Like well, if they were able to... I believe they became Northwest Airlines. Is that what happened? I think so. And they were just okay. they absorbed more companies and dropped the Orient. Okay. And, and I think they're out of business now, but mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm not hundred percent sure, but hmm. we're gonna have to put a pen in that and look into it, we'll I think. We'll check it out. Yeah. So Captain Scott um, said basically that quote he being Cooper requests two hundred thousand dollars in an AppSack by five PM. He wants two front parachutes, two back parachutes. He wants the money in negotiable American currency, end quote, which I'm assuming is like small, small bills. bills. I Googled it because I was like, this, I honestly was like, did, did this get like autocorrected to something <laughs> weird? Because it felt like it did not belong in the sentence. Right. But I Googled it. Small bills. Small bills. <laughs> so with Florence in the cockpit, another attendant named Tina becomes basically the go-between for Cooper while he continues to make even further demands. These included things like having fuel trucks meet the plane in Seattle for a refuel, having everyone remain seated while Tina brought the knapsack full of money onto the plane, and ensuring that the parachutes are the very last item to be brought on board. He does clarify bless his heart, <laughs> that he intends to release all the passengers once the money has been secured. So at least there's that. He well, doesn't really want to hurt people. Yeah. He just wants the dollars. That's what it feels like 100%. Like, he's not necessarily trying to hurt anybody. I mean, like, I don't even think he had a real bomb on him. Right. For sure. Like, <laughs> like I think it was just all a lie. So... Captain Scott contacts air traffic control at Seattle-Tacoma Airport, who then immediately informs local and federal authorities. They begin to make and execute a plan. They tell the other passengers that there's going to be a minor mechanical difficulty. There is a minor mechanical difficulty. And because of that, their arrival was going to be delayed. And then the aircraft begins to circle the Puget Sound area and continues to do so for two hours. So, like, imagine, guys, that, like... I would be like, um, <laughs> if it's so minor, why has it been two hours of us just flying in right. circles? Right, and <laughs> also, like, what kind of mechanical difficulty is there that the plane is still in motion? Right, we're still like, in the air. I would be very concerned. I've had a... I would have a lot of questions. I have questions also. So, the thing is, though, they needed this to happen because this is what gave authorities, a t like, time to get emergency personnel in play so they could get the items that Cooper requested together because like as you do with any hostage situation like you're going to acquiesce to their request or at least make some kind of attempt to do something that right. they want because they don't for all they know for all we know dude's got a bomb and he might could just blow everybody up and he's up. just really casual about it like, right I have a bomb no big <laughs> deal it's it's fine I still like the mess <laughs> 
I have a ball. Yes. Like, I just envision it so calm and collected, and that's terrifying to me. One of the first times I was ever exposed to this case, I actually watched BuzzFeed Unsolved oh. with um, Ryan and Shane, I think his name is, and, like, the way they delivered this part was just so comical, because, like, they just was, like, so dramatic, but... it And, like, this is one of those rare cases where like what happens everybody's okay at the end of the day for the most part like nobody got like brutally murdered or anything like that nobody got hurt physically right so like it's kind of funny to be so it i mean it is one that you can sort of make light of because again nobody was injured right exactly really that matters definitively (laughs) at the very right at the very least (laughs) so on top of the airline circling and doing all the things the president of the airline authorizes the ransom payment himself and he asks his employees to cooperate with cooper fully i i thought that was pretty cool because he could have been a hard ass and been like no right no money or make or like make the authorities come like bring it together like i think it speaks to like who this guy possibly could have been right as far as being like no employees stay safe like it seemed as if the number one concern was everybody's safety everybody's safety probably also he didn't want the bad press that came with the whole plane and (laughs) i was gonna say could you imagine like think about it if they're circling around the airport they're probably at a relatively like a lower altitude than they normally would be for regular flying i would assume i don't know i'm just guessing here guys but if it like blew up that could be like very damaging for a lot of things for sure so i could imagine you're right so while all of this was happening on the ground all the networking and whatnot cooper demanded that tina always stay seated next to him the two of them did somehow weirdly make small talk while the plane was circling endlessly uh she would later recall that he seemed to be familiar with the local terrain He was able to correctly notate where McCord Air Force Base was located, as well as pinpoint pretty much exactly what area they were flying over directly. Quote, looks like Tacoma down there, end quote. Like, just so casual, like he knew. Uh, He asked Tina where she is from, but gets upset when she asks him the same thing. (laughs) Like, don't you dare ask me the same question. I'm asking the questions here, (laughs) ma'am. Miss, I am a bomb. (laughs) At one point, she asks him why hijack their airline specifically, and Cooper responds with, and and this part really gets me, quote, it's not because I have a grudge against your airline, it's just because I have a grudge, end quote. And that is really fucking relatable. (laughs) That's why I was like, ooh, I could sort of see that, yeah. Yeah, honestly. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think it kind of is relevant with what's happening today with like corporate America and like the labor situation that's just happening across our country right? and probably everywhere else. Like, I think it's fitting because there's a lot of people right now who feel that way. Oh, absolutely. For sure. I just have a grudge. Except now people are crazy. It's like, it's like that thing, uh, you know how that one guy, that PETA guy glued his hand to the Starbucks counter no, but ew. Okay, so there's this, like, actor guy. I think he's, like, semi-famous. He might be famous-famous. I don't know. I had to Google him. But he <laughs> he is part of PETA, and as part of a protest, a bunch of people went into different Starbuckses, and they, like, super, like, they super glued their hands to the counters as, um, as, like, a protest to the upcharge for non-dairy milks. Which, I mean, I get it. I drink non-dairy milk through starbucks and i also understand where you're coming from however unfortunately they are just more expensive to 
to make to at this point, which is probably them. part of the reason. And I totally like support like what they were trying, like what their intent was. However, like your grudge isn't against that store in particular. Like you're going at the wrong people. Well, you're yeah. making minimum wage employees like and you're suffer. You're just causing a hubbub for people yeah. making like. That's what this made me hour. think of. I could like, see that. Totally. His grudge, I would assume, isn't with those people working at that it's store. With it's with what corporate decisions are made. Yeah. I don't have control over the prices any more than I have control over anything else that happens don't in the store. Don't get me started on that. Everybody's, right? Everything's more expensive, Rar. people. I'm sorry. <laughs> Flipping tables. Right? <laughs> um. So after the fact, like after this is all done, Tina does talk about their conversation with reporters and she said that, quote, he was not nervous, he seemed rather nice, and he was not cruel or nasty, end quote. Yeah, so. it seemed like he was very comfortable with his plan. Yes, absolutely. Like, and it seemed very like everything proceeded the way he wanted for the yeah. most part. Which I find very interesting. It, it is kind of crazy. Like, it's... And the fact that him and Tina were just chatting... Good on her, though, for keeping him calm and yeah. keeping herself calm in that kind of situation. See, like, this I is don't why know that I could do that. I bet personally. you could, because <laughs> in your line of business, you have to deal with... Crazy people? Ignorant. <laughs> rude. You can say crazy. They crazy. know they're crazy. <laughs> like, we both do. I feel like people... I feel like because of her job, that's part of the reason why she was probably able to handle this right. so well. Service industry people are very good in a crisis, and I don't think that we get enough credit for that kind of skill that you... Preach, girl. I'm... Oh, like, people <laughs> give... People don't not... They do not give industry people enough credit. And not Tina and Florence, like, is a perfect shining example of, even back then... Crushing <laughs> like, it. ...how amazing it is. So, the FBI records indicate that... Uh, Tina was not the only person that Cooper had chatted with. We don't have a lot of details about this conversation, um, but it appears that he briefly smoke, spoke to a man known only as the cowboy. <laughs> so nefarious sounding. He is otherwise unidentified. Uh, according to Tina, a man in a cowboy hat was bored, and he went looking for a sports magazine of some kind. Uh, Tina took the man to an area that was located directly behind Cooper's seat, and they proceed to look for something. The cowboy settles on a copy of The New Yorker, and he returns to his seat. Allegedly, this upsets Cooper, and he tells Tina that, quote, if that is a sky marshal, I don't want any more of that. <laughs> I just really love how, like, matter of fact, like, miss, I have a bomb. Right. I do not want to deal with the Sky Marshal, and right. I need my money. My money and my <laughs> parachutes, please, and thank you. So the cowboy was never formally interviewed or asked to make a statement, so I wonder if it was kind of like they chatted in the sense where he was like, excuse me, partner, like, I gotta right. chat with this lady that you're talking to, because right. I need assistance. Right. You're hogging her. How rude. I know. They're here to help everybody. There's other passengers, Dan sir. Cooper. So the ransom money wound up being collected from several different banks in the Seattle area. Authorities ended up with 10,000 unmarked $20 bills. Before handing the cash off to Cooper, the FBI took a microfilm photograph of each bill and noted all of the serial numbers. Crazy remember, to me. Remember microfilm, though? Mm-hmm. 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 Um, so most of the serial numbers began with the letter L, which, because I collect F's, that's from, like, Atlanta. Yeah. L's are designated as those bills came from San Francisco. I thought it was so smart that 
the FBI took fo- uh, took photographs. Oh, yeah. And the thing that fascinates me, I think, the most about this case is that it ends the way that it does. And I feel like authorities did everything right. That's what I'm, like, checking all the boxes here. Yeah. Like, oh, they're getting right on it. They're not putting up a fight. They're giving him what he wants. And yeah. And it's still, like... They're doing everything they can to keep everybody safe and also to, you know, try to catch this guy in the process. Like, insane. The FBI also had to purchase parachutes for this dude. Um, They went to a private local skydiving school to buy them. They had tried to give Cooper military-issued ones, but he was not having it. He wanted parachutes that had... They, that you would have to manually operate the ripcord specifically. So he was, like, very specific about what kind of parachute. Because apparently there's more than one. Yeah, I was like, mm, I have no like, idea oh, what any of these parachute differences are, but okay. Cool. <laughs> cool. I love that. Captain Scott was informed that everything was ready to hand off at 524 and informs Cooper that they would be landing the aircraft soon. The plane finally, after circling forever, lands about 20 minutes later. Captain Scott consults with Cooper about where he should park the aircraft. Basically, he just asked, like, is it okay to park on a partially lit runway instead of by the main terminal? Which is smart, just in case it is a bomb that way. Just the plane and not all the buildings get taken out. I also think it's smart, too, because I think that it is kind of a way of, like, the captain being, like, I am deferring to you. You are the one that's in control here. Right. And also, like, you don't want to be seen, right? Like, let's stay back where it's darker and nobody else will really notice what's happening. Right. Um, and Cooper was fine with all of these ideas. So once they park, they begin the process of handing off the cash, the parachutes, blah, blah, blah. All of the things. The only entrance and exit to the plane were from the front doorway via mobile air stairs. Um, waiting there was a single airline representative, the only one that was allowed to po- approach the plane with the requested items. Again, this setup was one of his demands. So Tina retrieves the money from said representative while the remaining passengers stay seated, which means that she then had to return to the plane, carry a big bag full of money, not that they knew, but a big awkward bag just passed everybody on the plane to the very back of the plane, and then she gave it to Cooper there. I just love it. Like, there's so many parts of this plan that's, like, well thought out, and then there's mm-hmm. something like this that happens, and you're just like, dude... It does make sense, because I did read that way nobody could, like, come up on him from yeah. behind kind of thing, mm-hmm. but I was like... Very mouth It's just so awkward for all the people just sitting there, like, what's happening? Well, could you imagine, like, try to think no. from the perspective of another passenger, like, you've been circling in the air for two and a half hours after what should have been just a 30-minute flight. This dude's getting all of the attention right. from all of the flight attendants, like, and now you're finally landed. Nobody can go anywhere, though. You're also not near the terminal. You're just in, like, a weirdly lit runway. Nothing's really mm -hmm. happening. And then all of a sudden this chick, like, comes back with this big, awkward bag of money. Or bag of something. Bag of... No matter what's in there is not great. (laughs) Well, $10,020 bills, that's probably a large bag. Significant, right? Not, like, a tiny, small bag. If movies have taught me anything, it's it's going to be hard to handle. Mm -hmm. So now Cooper has cash in hand. And he agrees to release the passengers. So at least, like, everybody's getting off the plane safely. And he starts to inspect the money while they're unloading. All the while, Tina is still going back and forth, ferrying all of Cooper's requested items onto the plane. 
he gets upset. <laughs> He's very upset because um, they did not put the cash in a knapsack like he wanted. So he essentially wanted it in like a backpack. Right. But instead it came in a cloth bag. And Whoops. he was not happy about it. So much so that he tried to like DIY something with one of his parachutes and he like ripped like something open. He ripped or cut one and used one of the cords from one of the parachutes to like wrap around the money and sort to of like secure it sort of, a little tighter, I yeah. think. Who knows? It was weird the way they explained it and then yeah. I Googled it further and I was like, yeah, I don't still what? still, still weird. weird. I don't know anything about parachutes. Leads either, me to believe so. that it didn't work. Right. Um, the whole situation, as you can imagine, was becoming quite stressful for all involved. And these poor flight crew is just probably like, God, can I get off the plane? Um, to ease some of the tension, go Tina. Ever. Bless her <laughs> I just love her. She tries to crack a joke and she's like, hey, Cooper, give me some money, basically. Heck yeah. And uh, he gives it to her. <laughs> Which I was like, wait, what? I was like researching and I was like, hold up. He actually Which did? Really okay. makes me believe that what Tina. Or Florence, I can't remember which one exactly quoted it. That, but everybody said that he was nice mm-hmm. and like easygoing. Like yep. it just kind of solidifies. He literally just gives her a packet of bills and like here you go. She gives it back immediately though, and she cites that they were not allowed to accept gratuity of any kind, which is true because uh, there's a story that he had tried to tip like the other flight attendants yep. before all this happened, and they also denied it. Um, but she also probably likely just didn't want to have any of that dirty money because I know that would be my first thought. Like, mm, no you thanks. You go spend it at the grocery store. Next thing you know, the feds are knocking your door down. Literally, like tearing <laughs> your house apart. Like, yeah, and also she was doing the right thing, so good for her. Exactly. So part of Cooper's plan was for the plane to refuel while at the airport, but it seemed to be taking a lot longer than expected. While they were waiting, the FAA made a request to meet with Cooper face-to-face, but he was like, nope, no thank you. I love that. He's just like, eh, I'm good. Mm, well, I think I'll stay no. here. What Whatever. we have going is working right? for it's me. Good. It's good for <laughs> me. So Cooper became impatient. He couldn't believe it was taking as long as it had. Um, so he ended up just using this free time, if you will, to review <laughs> his flight pa- plan with the cockpit crew. They were um, to set on a southeast course going towards Mexico City at an altitude of 10,000 feet, which, which is low. I was going to say, that does not yes. seem as if it's very high at all. Cooper wanted the plane to fly at the absolute minimum airspeed possible without any stalling, which was approximately 115 miles per hour. Which also does not seem like anything That seems like it would just plane. be like stuck in midair, yeah, kind of. it would be weird to see. Yes. <laughs> I wouldn't... Mm. Immediately, I'd be like, aliens! Right? <laughs> it's true! <laughs> that guy with the crazy hair was not lying to me. <laughs> you telling the truth all along. Um, so Cooper went as far as having the captain keep the landing gear, remain in the takeoff landing position, and for the wing flaps to be lowered 15 degrees, which is so specific and so, so, you, you know, I didn't, I don't know anything about planes, like literally nothing about the, and I feel like most average people wouldn't have this have sort no of knowledge yeah planes like work other than like the basics right yeah i would what is this yep. what his last demands were that they keep the cabin unpressurized and take off um with the rear exit door open and its air stair extended so apparently if you're under 
you're at 10,000 feet or under, the cabin can be unpressurized mm-hmm. and people won't be like, Bleh, you know yeah. what I mean? I thought that was so, really interesting. I guess that's why he specifically asked for And that. another thing, like, how <laughs> does he know all of this? Because as soon as, when I first read it, I was like, Suspicious. wait a minute, like, unpressurized, that, like, don't, like, can't people literally, like, die <laughs> because of that? Like, There was, I, I think it was a, a famous golfer or somebody, they were on a plane at a higher altitude, and the cabin somehow became unpressurized, and everybody died. Yeah. And the plane okay, crashed see, into a mountain. I didn't so think I was like, making shit up. Nope, it's an actual <laughs> thing. Like, it, it should be pressurized. That's, it's so For your safety. <laughs> he how he knows every little detail to ensure that he's able to execute all of this is just crazy, crazy to me. Mm-hmm. So the first officer realizes while they're going over this plan that the plane would have very little range with this whole setup. Only being able to go approximately a thousand miles and it took me a hot minute to understand what they meant, but basically they're saying like they could only go from like from the airport a thousand miles. They would not be able to make it to Mexico, basically. And so that's what he says. He's like, yo, Coop, like, (laughs) the plane is going to need a second refuel. We're not making it to Mexico without it. And so everyone agrees to stop at the Reno Tahoe International Airport for a refuel. Cooper was also informed at this time that it is much too dangerous for them to take off while the stairs were deployed. No shit, though. What? Hello. <laughs> I just envision a plane flying with the steps that I just walked up just, like, hanging yeah. on. I'm curious it's if that's very... why they drive them up now. Oh, maybe. Instead of unfolding them. I wonder if this is part of the reason. It very well could be. I mean? Yeah. I'd be curious to know. Hmm. I definitely just picture, like, some Twilight Zone shit. <laughs> like... I just can't imagine being at the airport and being like, what is happening? What is going <laughs> on? Right? I don't understand. Why are these people taking off with the stairs? I don't get it. Um, so he doesn't argue. He just adjusts his plan, and he decides that he would just lower the stairs once they were airborne. But because of that, he was going to need assistance. So he volunteered Tina to just hang out and assist him Lucky with this. girl. <laughs> like, as if she hasn't done enough for you, sir. Right. So at around-ish 7.40 p.m., the plane takes off with only a skeleton crew. It's Tina, in addition to the captain, the first officer, and the flight engineer on board with Cooper. Once they were in the air, Cooper wanted the stairs deployed via his original plan. Right. Uh, But Tina was terrified that she was going to be sucked out of the jet, which I don't entirely blame her for. No! Because I also have fears like that. Listen, sir, I have been through a lot tonight. (laughs) And this is where I draw the line. So she basically asked Cooper if she could have any kind of safety line. She suggested a few she felt comfortable with, but he actually rejected all of her ideas. Ultimately, he decides to just lower the stairs himself. Like, whatever, at this point. I appreciate that, though. Yes. Like, I well, appreciate that he was like, all right. I'll take your wants get and out needs of here. Into, yeah. into my brain. But mm. Whether it's selfish or not, I don't really care. It, it could have saved Tina's life oh, in that moment, sure. you know? And because he didn't need her, he tells her to go into the cockpit and just to stay there. But before she goes, she begs Cooper to take the bomb with him. Uh, he tells her that he intends to either that or he's going to disarm it. Wink, wink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nudge, nudge. Right. <laughs> the last that Tina or almost anyone ever saw of Cooper was him tying something, probably that 
ghetto rigged money bag (laughs) onto himself. He tied it around his midsection. She turned around and was like, peace the fuck out. I'm going to the cockpit to hide safely. That would also be the moment that I scoot scoot right out of there. I'd be like, sweet, I can go. Bye. Honestly, like I would just lock all the doors. Just leave me in here. (laughs) Yeah. I don't even know that I would have had it in me to question like take the bomb with you i think i would have just ran away yes so cooper's apparent plan has come to fruition like we're all seeing kind of everything unfold this man's intention was to rob money away from this airline and he has been successful mission accomplished so he's getting ready to make his big exit and in case you guys haven't figured it out he wants to jump out of the plane Hence the stairs deployed and the parachutes. Oh, like 75 the, mm. parachutes. Oh, well, 74 I'm now. a lot of, like, palpitations. <laughs> thinking about it. Also, it's, like, god-awfully hot here. I mm. hate summer. When's we'll it over? <laughs> um, so, the funny thing is, is that Cooper didn't know that there were three separate jets following the one that he's about to jump out of. Law enforcement set up two F-106 fighter jets... There was one above and one below the original plane. Because if you remember, McCord Air Force Base was, like, right, right the there. Right there. So. He pointed it out. Yes. Multiple times, I believe. They also had what's called a Lockheed T-33 trainer jet shadowing the original aircraft. And I did a Google search, and those things look badass. Yeah. Supposedly, it was doing some sort of training mission nearby. Yeah. And they were like, yo, we skirt, got a skirt. thing happening. So mm-hmm. they just flew over there to assist if they could. And they basically, like, from what I understand, try to like stay in the shadows as much as possible like i don't think they worried too much about the other two being seen i think this was going to be like their wild card right if anything were to happen and so he just is going to continue on with his plan it's around 8 p.m and a warning light goes off in the cockpit and this is alerting that the air stair apparatus has been activated so like them stairs be going down yes (laughs) out into just open air (laughs) the pilot Asked Cooper, like, via the intercom system if he needed any help, to which he responded with a no! Like a resounding... (laughs) Don't you come back here! From what I read, this was basically the only time that he, like, sort of lost his Mm -hmm. patience. He was like, no. Like, not angrily, but sort of like, just leave me alone. Probably because they were going to find out that he didn't actually have a bomb. Right. This is probably... He was probably doing something with his briefcase full of toilet paper rolls. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> flinging it out of the plane or something. Like, okay, don't need this shit anymore. <laughs> I, I got away with it. So, um, the crew hears nothing but silence and then notices a change in the air pressure. And this indicates that the rear door was now open. And this kind of gives me goosebumps with, like, just the way that it kind of, like, went down. So, at 8.13, the plane's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement that required the crew to readjust the plane and bring it back to level flight. Captain Scott makes note of their location. They were above the Lewis River, approximately 25 miles north of Portland. So you guys know what that means, right? He jumped out of the plane. Yep. I just envision him doing like a swan dive off the end of the (laughs) stairs. That's what I see in my head. You remember the cartoon Rocky and Bullwinkle? I pictured Rocky, the flying squirrel, yes. I like that analogy. I can see it in my head. Isn't it very that? Yes. But a guy in a white shirt and looking like a a man in black. Right? (laughs) 
Um, so the plane actually finally makes it to the Reno Tahoe International Airport sometime between 10 and 11.30 p.m. Could you just imagine, like, the relief like yes. that they probably felt like, oh, the dear, moment that you. that pressure wind thing happened? Yep. Like, thank God. Oh, baby has gone. Either that or the whole back section of the plane flew off. Either but, way, like, let's go. <laughs> right. Let's haul ass. So when they land, the rear air stairs were actually still deployed. They arrived on the ground to find FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and the local police department all waiting for them. I just envision, like, circling oh, the plane, yeah. like, all racing down the runway to catch it kind of thing. I think <laughs> if anything would be accurately depicted as a movie, like, this moment oh, would yeah, absolutely. be, like, what I, every... I feel like I've seen it in several movies, oh, I'm sure. you know? There's... There's definitely an airplane or two episode in Criminal Minds. Let's be real about it. Ooh, yeah, we were. We you know, know we gotta go there. We already know. Duh. Yeah. Um. So there was still some concern that the bomb was on board because they didn't actually know what happened to it. Like we said, Tina right. saw him with it, and that was the last time she saw him right. was with the bomb. With like so, all of his, th- but and he had all of his things. So right. Who knows? You know what happened? So law enforcement all. 511 of them <laughs> did not immediately approach the aircraft. Um, Captain Scott actually confirmed with authorities that Cooper was no longer on board the plane, so law inform- enforcement also confirms this after a 30-minute long bomb sweep. Yeah. Well, better safe than blown up. Yeah, so absolutely. I, I mean, they made it this far with everybody, Don't you know, staying now. intact with the exception of the suspect, so... Don't fuck it up. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> FBI agents immediately begin to break down the crime scene, as one is to do. They find 66 unidentified latent fingerprints on the plane. They also find that Cooper's tie, which was a freaking clip-on, <laughs> which is another... The little details of this case is what really just gets me. A clip-on? I think, like, the guys in the Unsolved, the one guy was like, what did he just do? Like, rip it off? Like, I'm Dan Cooper. Well, I'm <laughs> curious if you jump out of a plane, you probably don't want a tie whipping like, you about the that's face. really fair. Was I, my thought. Yeah. And if it was one of those that you actually tie on oh. your tie, would it strangle you with the force? Ooh. I had a lot of questions about the tie, because I was like, why out of everything would he leave the freaking tie behind? Right. You know? It, <laughs> well, yeah. Well, it's a clip-on, so just, just take that bitch off, like, like I'm good. And then down he goes. They also found his tie clip, which makes sense because it probably was attached Part to the tie it, right. at some point. And two parachutes were left behind. One of the chutes were opened with two lines cut from the canopy. We know that which from his DIY was project. The, yeah, weird he was natural thing crafting. that was happening. Uh, Cooper also left behind eight filter-tipped Raleigh cigarette butts. Because, I mean, it's a little detail, but he was, like, smoking throughout the plane. He At one point, he uh, offered Tina a cigarette she took it, but I don't think she, like, smoked it, yeah, I think. I think she just took it. I don't believe she smoked, or yeah. she was too nervous to smoke I think she was point. just taking it because, like, you're not going <laughs> to oh, tell okay, the guy sure, who's you. holding. With the bomb, bomb, bomb. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Like, like, yeah, let me piss off the guy with the dynamite. Right. So these butts, um, unfortunately, somehow get lost over the years, like, over the course of the investigation. Well, I mean, so no, like, DNA or anything comes of it. You guys think about it. It's 2022. 1971 right. was a... Well, Really long time ago. Let's not talk about it. Not that long, but I mean, it was today at work, I ago. told a girl that Jaw Rule and Maya were going to be at the Year Day celebration, and she said, "Who are they?" Oh no! And I was like, "Oh, just people that girl, were popular when I was at high school." Look on YouTube and feel <sighs> bad for us because we're old. <laughs> 
So after they comb the plane for all of the things they can find, which is literally like nothing, right. the interviews begin. Mm-hmm. Eyewitnesses are questioned, and they compile, they being the feds, compile enough evidence, or I guess traits. Information, maybe. For a composite sketch. They even basically had a suspect in mind pretty much immediately. So this this is what makes me laugh the most. <laughs> yes. Because I did not know this part. Mm-hmm. There was a man who lived in Oregon who was actually named D.B. Cooper. This poor guy. He did have a minor rap sheet, but it was enough of one that authorities went, hmm, let's, let's check this him. guy out. Maybe him. He was quickly ruled out, but thanks to a local reporter who was in a hurry to get his shit in the paper, um, this man's name will live in infamy. Because, (laughs) as you may recall, when we started this episode, Cooper originally bought his ticket and used the name Dan. Right. Right. Not initials. But... When we started the episode, we did refer to the case as the mystery of D.B. Cooper. Again, this guy was like, I just need my byline published. (laughs) So the article got published. Other media outlets started picking up the byline and the information and just sort of went sprinting with it. So this is honestly how D.B. Cooper became the name that's widely associated with this crime. Because it should be Dan Cooper. It's so... And like... (laughs) We don't know anything about the original D.B. Cooper. He could have been a total shithead. That's true. But, I mean, like... He probably didn't deserve this. I was... Like, Can you even imagine the number of people breaking his front door down to get, like, an... Inter- oh, did you hijack Especially because like, people are so fascinated by this case. I mean, who wouldn't be? Like, honestly. Well, and back then, it's not like you could just Google it on the internet. Right. If you were from out of state, your ass was driving there. So mm-hmm. I'm sure people just showed up all the time like, oh, D.B., we I'm need an sure. interview. <laughs> I'm sure. It's crazy. So law enforcement really tried to define a precise search area, but they found it difficult, to say the least, because, you know, they were flying in the air when everything happened. There are so many factors that go into figuring out a plane's exact location at an exact moment. It's basically an exact science. Well, obviously, they didn't have, like, computerized things right. to the extent we do now. Not, like, can... recording every moment the plane makes. Because there's actually an app on your phone. You can just point it at the sky and see all the flights that are going overhead at any given time. Interesting. It's crazy. So I could be like, oh, there's flight 305 right there. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was not like that in 1971. So these things that they had to, like, take into consideration were, like, any speed differences that the plane made. Because if they dropped, like, their speed even by, like, one mile per hour, that could have made a huge difference in, like, where they were when he jumped. They also had to look at the environmental conditions. Which I heard weren't great. They were atrocious. (laughs) What the flight path was. And even the amount of time that lapsed before Cooper pulled the ripcord. Which, which, again, nobody knows. How do you know the exact moment? They tried to make note of it, but those people were also traumatized. Like, like, Like I said, I could only imagine what was happening in that cockpit was every single moment individually was just like... Like, okay. Like, hopefully he's gone. Hopefully we're safe. (laughs) Hopefully the bomb's off. Let's just get to Reno. Right. Like, so there were varying ideas of where he may have ended up. They turned to the three pilots of the other planes and started asking them some questions. They all claimed to have not witnessed anything exit the plane. Again, though, it, yep. Mm -hmm. They said they didn't even see an open parachute. Well, it was nighttime. I'm curious if the, uh, was the parachute bright white? Bright gray? Exactly. You know what I mean? 
obviously it wasn't camo because it wasn't military, but still. Right, absolutely. They also said that there was limited visibility because there was um, a cloud cover. So they didn't really see a whole lot. So, right. I mean, it kind of seems like they were there just because. They tried, but... Like a just-in-case kind of yeah. thing. If we can help, we will. But also, what are we going to do? Exactly. Like, the plane onto the ground? That's not how that works. <laughs> right? So, I mean, it's totally feasible that a man in all black would be very difficult to see. So, it's definitely, like, if he jumped and used parachute, they might not know. Right. They might could be able to sort of predict. But, yeah. again, with all those factors... He's wearing all black. Even the white t-shirt. It was raining, I believe. Mm -hmm. And, like, that would have gotten damp immediately. Like, I literally mean, soaking. November in Portland or Seattle, I feel as though that's just damp and sort of gray. I've it's never lived there, so I don't gray. know. You tell us. They're but always all the time, gray. right? Yeah. <laughs> so law enforcement basically begins to try things to sort of get an idea where Cooper may have landed. Uh, the FBI took an offer from the Air Force and began use of their jets for the manhunt. The SR-71 Blackbird was charged with um, retracing and photographing the flight path taken from Seattle to Reno. There, they were also to attempt to locate any of the items that Cooper was known to have on him when he exited the aircraft. So that yeah. was the bag himself a parachute yeah. a money thing and the briefcase and the with briefcase the yeah that's i mean and all of it's probably black a brown paper bag <laughs> right what's that it's raining be? How's that you know that just up? exploded into disintegrated it's gone um there were also five different attempts made to sort of map things out but nothing came of any of them because the visibility on the course or on the path was just too low yeah which makes sense again gray 10,000 yeah. feet up in the air, like, I can't imagine it being a very, like, great place for flying. Hence why they probably don't fly that I've level. flown lots of places, but I've always been higher, and even then right. I'm like, that is a mountain. That's a literal cloud that I'm just hanging I'm out like, in. cool. <laughs> That's why I'm like, mm, I don't think I would be able to pinpoint anything. Right. Again, this was a military plane, so they had more... Yeah. More than just me looking out the window, but still, I don't like their chances. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think they liked their chances mm -mm. either. So next on their list of things to try was a recreation of sorts. Bees so made me giggle. I well, and also, also, I felt like it was really smart. Like this was a really oh, yeah. smart thing to do. So some agents, as well as uh, flight engineer Anderson, he was on the plane with Cooper. They jump on a plane and take the same flight path as Flight Three Hundred Five. They use a 200-pound sled, to, and they just threw that shit off the plane. <laughs> like, th they threw that bitch right I off. I just envisioned, like, what is happening right Honestly. now? Honestly. Things flying out of planes. Well, and they Low did that. flying planes. I love it, because that was what they used to, like, simulate Cooper jumping out of the plane. And Good they were them. successful in creating that same upward motion that was experienced by Anderson the first yeah. time. So I found that was really interesting. Uh, thanks to this, they were able to guess Cooper's landing area a little bit. It They surmised it to be within the southernmost outreach of Mount St. Helens. Which, y'all know that name, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The spot being a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington, which is near an artificial lake called Lake Merwin. I love that name, Merwin. Yes. What? Come I want to go there. Nuts out there. I love it. I, Washington is an interesting Crazy. state. I, I'm not mad about it. 
I would like to be there. Uh, they do a massive ground search as well, but they come up with nothing. Like, they're going door to door. They're doing anything and everything they can to try to find this man. You can't say they did not try. They really did. For <laughs> they're trying all years. of the things. <laughs> they conduct an aerial search of the area as well, and they found numerous broken tree trucks tree tops and things of the like but they concluded that none of it was connected to cooper unfortunately i love that they were just looking for spots like okay it looks like a man could have fallen to the trees there let's well, look there and, like any sort of debris they saw in the aerial search they were like well we're gonna mark that on the map gonna yeah, investigate it's like well. bits of garbage like right. i would be so frustrated this had to have been the most discouraging yes. <laughs> like maybe not the most but this had to have been a very frustrating there, right? case to work on and two hundred thousand dollars is not a small chunk of change now exactly. let alone back then that was probably like a bizarre we, check, we never check the conversion mm. rates. We'll, we'll remember that for one of these days. Right. Well, it's usually when it's, like, really olden times. Right. I'm usually more curious. Yeah. yeah I mean, the 70s feels like olden times it, to me. No offense, everybody. <laughs> no, we're all so young We still. are so young. <laughs> Um, so at this point, the FBI is like, "Well, what we're not, what we're doing right now is sort of not working. So let's switch tactics." Uh, a month after the initial hijacking, they decide to distribute the serial numbers that were attached to all the cash. Because remember, they notated all of that. Right. Took smart took microfilm photographs and everything. Um, they alert several different types of businesses, specifically ones that conduct large cash transactions. So it was like casinos and stuff yeah. like that, mm-hmm. which which makes sense to me. Oh, yeah. In early 1972, the U.S. Attorney General decides to release the serial numbers to the public. What? And right. announces that there is a reward in place for any information regarding the missing bills. Northwest... Orient Airlines, God bless their hearts yet again, <laughs> offered the reward up to $25,000. This is where things kind of take a turn, where we start questioning law enforcement's mm-hmm. decisions here and there. I mean, they were, they really were trying. It was only a year later. Yes. So Not even. It was early 1972 is like six months. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They were just not happy. Well, again, we just said it was so frustrating. Maybe they're just like, I'm so fucking sick of looking for this I'm, guy. Yes. <laughs> Let's do whatever we can. We start flipping tables. <laughs> so the reward money kind of opened up, um, opened themselves up to other issues. Unfortunately, there were two men who thought it would just be a swell idea to make counterfeit bills. That matched the serial numbers that were released. Oh my goodness! To the public. That's such a good idea. What could right. possibly go wrong? Because they, you know, specifically printed all of the serial numbers attached to the case. The fake bills were given to a man named Carl Fleming, and poor Carl, he was just Ugh. a reporter for Newsweek, trying to make a name for himself, trying to get his big break. I and bet. he was promised an interview with the hijacker himself, and they like gave him the bills. As, like, I think, like, a good faith gesture, mm-hmm. like, look, we have some of the matching serial numbers, yeah. so either we know the kidnap or the hijacker, or we one are. of us is the hijacker. So they um, scammed this guy for 30 grand. He paid them 30 grand for an interview that he never got. And again, back then, 30 grand was not, like, small it's chunk of change. It's not as now. I would never be like, yes, here's $30,000. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just wait here while you go get the information for yeah, me. Thank okay, you. thanks. <laughs> There's not a lot of people that I would even be willing to pay $5. <laughs> yeah, to <be> exactly. Like- <laughs> Word. 
Um, so the case obviously was pretty newsworthy and kind of took on like a treasure adventure kind of lore. In fact, not too long after things thawed out in the spring of 82, a whole butt ton of people. Did I say 82? I meant 72. A whole <laughs> butt ton of people, both civilians and actual officials, went searching for any trace of DB. They looked for 18 days over the course of March and April. Uh, some folks even used a submarine to search Lake Merwin. Yeah. <laughs> um, but of course, they couldn't find a single gosh dang thing that related to Cooper. However, they did find some remains that helped them close an actual murder case from a few weeks earlier. It was two ladies looked in some sort of well or something. Yeah. And found a body of a woman who had been missing, I believe. Yeah, for like three weeks, I think, at that point. Yeah. So, like, a small silver lining to right. what these at people least had one to go crime through. Was solved. <laughs> right. Um, by 1975, the money is still missing, and Northwest Orient's insurer paid out the claim made on the ransom money, which was a sum of $180,000, so at least they got some they of got it back. They got back the majority. So, a little bit. Better than zero. <laughs> Literally better than zero. At some point, law enforcement determines that the flight path taken by the plane was actually farther east. So this moved the original drop zone to the drainage area of the Washougal River. That sounds right. Washougal. Washougal. <laughs> they searched the area, and of course, nothing was fucking found. We're seeing a sort of pattern here. <laughs> Investigators concluded that, obviously, the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helen likely destroyed any physical evidence that may have remained. I feel like these poor guys are like, okay, so another dead end. Uh, well, Let's obviously, is this. <laughs> We're getting close now. Gosh, explodes. Volcano. Oh, damn it. <laughs> really, though, I mean, honestly, it's like, what else could possibly go wrong, which you should never say, and then right. something goes wrong. Like, seriously, again. goes wrong. Uh, so this brings us to November of 1978, so seven, seven years later. Mm -hmm. A deer hunter finds a page of printed instructions while out and about just searching the area one day. Um, they were found near a logging road about 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington. These instructions actually wound up detailing how to lower the rear stairs of a 727. Dun, dun, dun. What? And you can bet that this location is within the flight's basic path just north of Lake, Lake Merwin. Merwin. <laughs> I just love saying Lake Merwin. We should have like put that in everything. <laughs> put a t-shirt. Lake Merwin. <laughs> Like Camp Crystal Lake, but Camp Ooh. Crystal Lake Merwin. <laughs> I like it. So we're going to fast forward to February 10th, 1980, about a year and a half after uh, the instructions were found. The Ingram family was vacationing on the Columbia River, a town located about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington, and it's about 20 miles southeast of Ariel. Ariel. Ariel? It's spelled like the Little Mermaid. Oh, that's in my head. I was like, yes. <laughs> Little eight-year-old Brian stumbles upon three packets of the ransom cash, what? you guys. <laughs> he just found it. It was a bit beaten up and slightly disintegrated from weather exposure, but still rubber-banded together and Isn't still that like what? quite obviously 
money what? from the situation. Like big giant stacks yeah. of money. They were even still arranged in the same order as when they were originally given to Cooper. And the total found was about $5,800. I mean, which again, that's not a small chunk of change. No. I know it's no 200 Especially grand, for a little eight year old boy. Right. Because <laughs> remember, there is still ransom money tied right, to Right, exactly. This. Um, so the FBI at this point is like, whoa, what? Like, here <laughs> like, we go. I just envision them like foaming at the mouth. <laughs> so they get texts on this, analyzing the cash right away. Now keep in mind, it's still 1980, so they can only do so much analyzing with what right. they got. Right. They do confirm that what was found, it was two packs of 120s and one pack of 9020s. That they did in fact come from the ransom money, which cool development thing. Yeah. Okay. Finally, like something, right? Which, I mean, this discovery's like cool and all, but <laughs> it actually just left authorities with even more questions <laughs> than answers. Right. And there were so many questions before. <laughs> so so many. Like, Dear God, no. Not um more. Right. After looking into things a bit more, they conclude that it wasn't likely that the money was deliberately buried Sediment and clay were found on the bills, which suggested that the bills likely arrived in that area after the initial dredging took place. Because they were, back in the yeah. day, dredging rivers, dredging Lake Merwin, dredging, Doing all the dredging, thing. like stirring yeah. shit up, basically. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And none of those ever came to any sort of fruition. So they determined that they either floated or... Managed to get them there placed. themselves. Yep, yeah. yep. Um, and finally, in 1986, they actually divide the recovered bills between the Ingram family and Northwest Orient's insurer. <laughs> um, the FBI did retain 14 of the bills as evidence. This should have a huge asterisk next to it. <laughs> this is the only actual evidence of the hijacking that remains that was not found in the cockpit the day after. Yeah. Or the day of, Like outside I guess. of the aircraft, mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. That's crazy. Bananas to me. <laughs> crazy. Almost 10 years later. That's... They're lucky they weren't mush, you know what I mean? Right, honestly. Back then, money was actual, like, paper, not, like, whatever kind of weird stuff we have now. <laughs> In 2007, they find three DNA samples on Cooper's tie. They weren't really banking on too much coming from it, though. Cooper may not have been the source of the samples in the first place. The Bureau, at this time, decides to make some more information public. So they release a couple composite sketches, some fact sheets, as well as Cooper's 1971 plane ticket. Which I believe this was all previously unreleased. Yeah. Right? That's, what, that's the way it read to me. I didn't investigate further that's, because, like, it kind of... Why else would they... Right. X amount oh, no, of years later, sure. you know what I mean? They were like, I guess, let's just throw this Here in. Here you go. So the parachute discovery is one of the more interesting facts released. Uh, and I think this is when really people kind of started digging into some of the meat of the case a little bit more. So one of the primary shoots, the parachute, he was given four of them. Two primary, two reserves. One of the primary shoots... Like I did shirts. this. I did this when I was reading it back to myself. I had to say parachute so many times. It doesn't sound like I, a real word anymore. I typed anymore. it so many times that I was like, "This is made up," but it doesn't <laughs> want to correct it. So this word does not exist. Parachute. <laughs> is this how shoot is spelled? And then I was like, "Shoot, shoot is a weird word. Shoot, shoot, shoot." Honestly, it's like when you say fork too many times. Really, mm -hmm. this isn't. This is not a real word. <laughs> not a thing. So one of the primary shoots were a brand new professional sport parachute 
whereas the other was a much older military shoot. And when given the choice, Cooper went for the older one. When choosing his reserve shoot, he makes a severe mistake, and he chooses the dummy shoot, which was um, something specifically that is used for classroom demonstrations, and it's actually sewn shut. So this information lends credibility to the theory that Cooper could have been former military and likely a parachutist. Because... As you'll see, a lot of the suspects that they do come up with, it's like paratrooper, 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 paratrooper. I was like, dear God, oh my Lord. You're not wrong. <laughs> she is not wrong, folks. Made my brain go like haywire a little bit. I when was I like, parachutes. wrote parachutist, I was like, that's also not a word. It is. Not a word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is. It's a thing, apparently. Microsoft did not correct it. <laughs> right. So unless they know something we don't know. So they this, might. right. <laughs> Um, so in March of 2009, the FBI discloses that they have a team of quote unquote citizen sleuths <laughs> on the case. Oh, I love it. I like that it's like armchair detective kind yeah. of thing. Like, cool. At good this for point, you. they're like, what do we have Bro, to fucking anything. lose? Unfortunately, these citizens <laughs> did not really gather anything new. No. Um, the team did find something in November of 2011. One of the members found titanium particles on the tie, which could suggest that Cooper may have worked with uh, metal slash chemicals for his day job. This same member makes a report in January of 2017 that they were also able to find some rare earth metals on the tie. Um, This further cements their job theory and takes it one step further, stating that Cooper um, may actually, might could, have worked for Boeing because, (laughs) right, Boeing at the time was working on some projects that required the use of some of the elements that were actually found on Cooper's tie, which is intriguing to me. Yeah, I definitely thought that was an interesting layer. (laughs) So, let's go over suspect profile versus their actual suspects, because oddly enough, they did have a few reaches here and there. So, profile. Tina and Florence gave statements regarding what happened on the plane on the same night, but in different cities. And the details given were almost identical. A man named Bill Mitchell sat across from Cooper for the entire flight, and he also gave a description that matched Tina's and Florence's. So, 5'10", approximately, anywhere between 170 to 180 pounds. Mitchell thinks he was a bit smaller and slighter, but whatever. He was in a black trench coat. Right. Those are said to be <laughs> slimming, so who knows? <laughs> he was mid-40s. He had short black hair that was, like, combed back. He had olive skin tone. Mitchell said specifically it thought he thought it reflected a Mexican or Indian ancestry. No discernible accent of any kind, and he had brown-colored eyes, or, like, darker-colored eyes at the very least. How generic is that Honestly, profile? This, like, I... It's like, so he looks average with a tan. Well, cool. <laughs> I read this one theory, like, I don't think I... There literally isn't anything to it, so I didn't bother adding it to the script, but I read one, like, a year ago where people legitimately think that Cooper was, like, one of the men in black, that, like, the men in black are, like, a, a real government thing, hmm. and then that he was one of them. Oh, which well, I think I is just so. that would be awesome. I just think that's like an interesting. Thank you for making aliens, cab drivers, and pugs. I love you. Thank you, <laughs> Men in Black. I love Men in Black too. 
It's such a bad movie that I like. No, it's a bad. It's a good bad movie. Yes, I will watch the shit out of it when it's on. Both of them or all of no, I'll watch the first two. The first one is good. The second one's my favorite. The third one's weird. Isn't there a new one too? Oh, maybe I don't know. It's got mm, Thor in it. Oh, and oh, okay. I think it's Thor, and I think it's Valkyrie. I love that you're using their character names. Yeah. Well, you know who I'm talking about, right? I I do. Yes. Yes. I'm pretty sure it's them, but I was like, what a weird thing to be doing. It didn't do very well. Hmm. Nobody saw it. That tracks. Me either. (laughs) Um, So over over the course of this whole investigation, the FBI made multiple sketches. So composite sketch A was obviously the first one made. The suspect looked too young and, according to the witnesses, didn't accurately depict his disinterested, quote, let's get it over with, end quote. I just love that. Like, blase, blase, blase. God, can you guys take any longer? Right. I have a bomb. Come on. (laughs) Urgency. Um, Ultimately, witnesses agreed that this was a poor likeness to the man that they were looking for. So, here comes composite sketch B. (laughs) This one was based mostly on Bill Mitchell's testimony. Um, The FBI really wanted to capture an accurate depiction of the suspect's correct age and swarthy complexion. I love it. I had to Google that, too. (laughs) I love that you wrote that in your notes. (laughs) It just means dark-skinned. Yeah, like like darker complexion. I I think of swarthy like pirates. I like, cool. I, too, think that. that. air pirate shit. Mm, Yeah, that's why mm. I was like, oh, swarthy. But I was like, he wasn't like... This is very much like a Pepe Silvier moment. (laughs) I was like, he wasn't, like, dressed like a pirate. I don't... Again, like I said, I had to Google it because I was like, I don't think I'm reading this in the right context here. So they showed the initial sketch of Composite B to the witnesses before its release. This one was also met with some criticism. This they time, just were not having it. Their like, sketch artist was like, Together, no. guys. <laughs> Apparently this time around, they made Cooper look too old and rougher around the edges than he actually was. This sketch had him looking angry with a still too light complexion. Which, okay. Oh, it, it's so angry. odd, like, what they're focusing on. But, I mean, I would imagine that the people who, especially the flight attendants, like, Florence and Tina, probably had a pretty good idea of what he looked like. So they were probably, like, adamant, like, no, you're fucking getting this all wrong. Right. Oh, You want to sure. find this fucking guy or not? <laughs> like. So this brings us to uh, January of 1973 when they finally get composite whatever. I, f- I forget what they called it, like B2 or something weird. Right. It, it was bizarre. Composite W. Right. Um, they finally get it right, and they release this final sketch to the public. The witnesses agree that this last one is much more accurate. One of the attendants actually even said that, quote, the hijacker would be easily recognized from this sketch. So good. Finally. About friggin' time, y'all. seal of approval was given. So a few other things of note in the suspect profile. Um, The suspect seemed to be familiar with the Seattle area and, like, the local terrain. He made that note about the Air Force, about Mm -hmm. Tacoma. They're thinking he may have been a military vet. Air Force specifically. Duh. They're duh, thinking duh. that his all of these are like well, no shit. Because the next one is they're like his financial status may have been desperate. Well, you'd have to be if you're gonna go hijack an airplane with a what's likely a fake bomb. But also even worse if you built a real bomb. What? Bruh, bruh. 
their logic behind this is basically that criminals don't often commit a crime like this with this kind of urgency or magnitude if they didn't absolutely need to, which is fair because, right. duh, the whole point of committing a crime isn't to get caught. Suspect may have been a thrill seeker and wanted to prove a jump could be done. So that's one theory that they were throwing out there. Like, well, maybe he just fucking felt like it. No. Hence no, the fake you. bomb. No, no. The alias was likely taken from a French-Belgian comic series. Its protagonist's name was Dan Cooper. And I actually didn't know this information beforehand. And if I did, I completely forgot about it. <laughs> Blocked it out. So, in the comic, Cooper was a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot. He went on many heroic adventures, which included parachuting. Um, and oddly enough, these comics weren't translated to English or distributed in in the U.S., at all. So he had to have picked it up in like Europe and they're thinking maybe a military tour. Well that and that makes absolute sense because yeah. a lot of people that go overseas bring a lot of weird shit back. Yeah. I would definitely bring back comic books. Like I think that shit's bring so back. cool. Yeah, absolutely. I'd bring a rock back for Anastasia, but also comic books. I'd bring a rock back probably <laughs> for myself. Right. <laughs> Um, they also said the suspect was familiar with how planes generally worked. He was also familiar with flying techniques and patterns, so on and so forth. The authorities surmised that he demanded four parachutes to actually make them believe that he intended to jump with the hostage, hoping to ensure that he didn't re- receive any, like, uh, broken <laughs> chutes or anything like that, anything sabotage. Or you which, mean, like, a dummy one that was sound shut? Well, and Maybe how... That. Mm-hmm. Maybe that. Could mine be. <laughs> the seat choice also seemed very intentional, so I'm not sure if they actually had assigned seats or it was yeah. just like, go if wherever you want. There, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Um, it ensured that all of the action was taking place in front of him, and it would sort of make him less conspicuous to all of the other passengers. The, not the poor flight attendant with the giant case of <laughs> right. money, but not like, her. whatever. But Cooper himself. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, the suspect attempted to collect all traces of himself, and for the most part, other than, like, the cigarette butts and the clip-on tie, he was very successful in that endeavor. He's the reason we don't know what the note said, because he collected it before he jumped. He took it back. There was actually, I don't know if the story's in here, there was a matchbook that he had, and... It's not. The, um, one of the flight attendants, I can't remember if it was Florence or Tina... She either lit his cigarette or something, but she used the last match in the book, and she went to discard it in the garbage, and he was like, no, no, I'll I'll take take that, that. (laughs) and put it in his pocket. So he really didn't want to leave any traces behind. Not even a matchbook. You smart, smart, smart man. Um, The choice of the plane was actually also intentionally done. It had to be a 727 aircraft is more ideal for a bailout escape due to the rear air stair thing. And the placement of the engines. So the 727s had a recent upgrade to their fuel tanks that allowed quicker filling also. And they had the ability to remain at a lower speed and a lower altitude while still not stalling out. And I think the placement of the engine thing was like, you yeah. won't get sucked into it. They were, um, <laughs> kind of I thing. think your notes, if I remember correctly, said that the engines were placed a little bit higher up in the plane. So you wouldn't get caught in any kind of brack draft or anything yeah. like that. Mm-mm. That'll that'll ruin an engine. (laughs) (laughs) And your day. And your life. (laughs) Right. So at this point, it's pretty clear that Cooper was quite familiar with how this plane worked by some rhyme or reason. He had knowledge of how to control the airspeed and the altitude. He knew where the 
like what flap setting would that you do? Fifteen ten. degree adjustment yeah. to the flaps. Would How be. long it would take to fuel the plane? Because don't forget, guys, he was getting pissed <laughs> because he was waiting for the refuel. Mm-hmm. And it was taking too long. He knew details about the rear stairs and how they worked, things a typical civilian would not know. There's a theory that Cooper was likely to have been an aircraft cargo loader, possibly, maybe, could be, before the hijacking. And this would explain the, like, intimate knowledge he had and how he was possibly able to execute this whole thing. Absolutely. Which is crazy to think of. Honestly. (laughs) Especially, like, in today's terms, because... Flying is not that anymore. Oh, no. Absolutely not. It's not that simple. It's not that, like, easy breezy, beautiful cover girl. Like, it's (laughs) difficult. Oh, no. So, between 1971 and 2016, there have been more than a thousand serious suspects in this case. (laughs) One thousand. And I listed a whole bunch of my research, (laughs) and it was just crazy to see how it, like, that might could have been him. Also, this might could have been him type status. Yeah. Um, Many of these, however, were processed, and they basically just include publicity seekers and your occasional deathbed confessional type of thing. Apparently, it was, like, a whole-ass trend to be, like, on your deathbed and be like, I'm D.B. Cooper. I'm D.B. And your family's like, what? I hijacked the plane. And if I was, I would be like, so where's the money, bro? Why didn't you share any of them? Are we rich? Because if we're not rich, I have more questions. (laughs) I must ask you some things. Um, The ones that we're going to talk about are just the notable ones, the ones that seem to match up a little better, in my opinion. Yeah, Um, I agree. The first up on the list is Ted Braden. He was a master skydiver and also a master felon. Uh, This man is batshit crazy. So Um, crazy. Insane. Yeah. He was arrested by the FBI in the early 70s for a trucking scam. It was was something like uh, he was not like robbing trucks or something. Honestly, we could, if we really wanted to, we could probably make a whole fucking episode just on this dude. Of this guy? There was so much stuff that I just had to be like, okay, we can't get into his whole criminal history. Yep. (laughs) Nope, because we'll never be done talking ever. Forever and ever. He joined the military at 16. He served in the 101st Airborne during World War II. He was a top parachutist. He made 911 recorded jumps. That is 911 too many. I, I don't even want How to How do that we know so. two people that have willingly jumped out of a plane? Because they're pretty. Jen's like, I would do it again. No. Like you're on your own. No. Mm-mm. You literally could not pay me enough money to jump out of a plane. No, thank you. I don't even want to get out of a car before it comes to a full stop. Right. Like, are you kidding me? No judgments here. <laughs> um, he was also a team leader for the Green Berets. He served 23 grueling months in Vietnam. He was, however, honorably discharged from the military, but was barred from reenlisting after he deserted his unit and served as a mercenary in another country. You know, this whole honorably discharged thing really kind of seems like a whole, like, boys will be boys kind of thing. So, I did read, because he had knowledge, because he was a Green Beret of, like, secret behind-the-scenes missions, they honorably discharged him just so he wouldn't go go about flapping some loose lips, Mm. telling people the secrets. But they barred him from realisting because they were like, this man is nothing futz. Get him out of here. No, thank you. That's interesting. In this instance, I think it was like, please, dear God, go away. As a safety precaution kind of thing. Okay, that makes sense. Preserving them. (laughs) 
Um, however, fair. right, his physical description actually matched Cooper's very closely, and he did, from talking to his family and, and friends and stuff, he really seemed to enjoy putting himself in dangerous situations, hence everybody's suspicions here. And I don't know, it, I didn't find anything really stating why he was how or why he was cleared as a suspect. I don't actually, some of these people were not cleared. They just, just didn't have like enough info forward. to be like, let's call him D.B. Cooper and put him in jail. Call it You know bit. what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so, uh, Kenneth Peter Christensen that is, is a name. suspect number two. He was a paratrooper in the army. He deployed to, to Japan in 1945. He worked for Northwest Orient in 1954 what? and was a mechanic for them. What? And he eventually became a flight attendant. And you guys, he was based in Seattle. Hmm. Curiouser and curiouser. Interesting. His physical description didn't really match, but he did smoke and he enjoyed bourbon. Because hey. apparently that's all that mattered. That's there. all we need to look into the situation. And he's a paratrooper. I've enjoyed and a flight attendant. the bourbon. He today. has some knowledge, so... <laughs> Florence couldn't definitively say that Kenneth was DB, but she did say that he resembled her memory of him. In 2010, a book was published pointing to Kenneth as the obvious suspect. However, the FBI did come out and say that he could not be considered a prime suspect. And I'm pretty sure it was Kenneth's brother that was like, yo, I think my brother is DB Cooper. Oh. And he went to the book author and it became this big, huge thing. And the FBI was like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Calm your jets. <laughs> we don't think he's a suspect, so yeah. like write whatever you want, but it's probably not true. Like we're not gonna. Yeah, because again, this case is condone. so sensationalized. So it is, and like I, I find it had it, a lot of people looking at friends and family yeah. and spouses as like, <gasps> could you be DB? Are you right. batshit crazy? Were you in the military? Well, okay, great. Because like, like we mentioned, like this is one of those cases where like it, it. You don't feel guilty speculating. You don't, like, feel this, like, sadness when you're talking about the case. Like, Susan and I say it all the time. Like, a lot of the reason why we like to have cocktails while we do this is because, like, it helps us just be able to convey the information. Right. And, and sort of take the edge off the weight of yeah. what we're and like conveying. we're never making light of the situation but this is a light true crime podcast so like it just kind of is what it is but this is a case that like is a little bit more fun to play around with for lack of a better word and i feel like people of the 70s the 80s and moving forward probably felt the same way oh for sure it was probably like a whole whodunit well and i can only imagine like right after the crime occurred how like awesome it would be yeah. to be like let's go treasure hunting for two hundred thousand yeah, exactly. dollars <laughs> i mean come come the fuck on if you think for a second that you and i would not have been there with mark being like all right guys i guess like we're going to i Man guess, St. I St. guess Helen. we're being outdoorsy today <laughs> I, right uh, i guess <laughs> Uh, I've been going on walks in the woods. Girl, I would have been there. How many backpacks do we need? Honestly. Granola and water bottles. Let's party. <laughs> we are ready. Um, so the last guy that was super interesting to us is a man named Jack Kofelt. He was a con man, ex-con. He <laughs> was even rumored to be a government informant. Um, according to him, LOL, <laughs> he was chauffeur and confidant to Abraham Lincoln's last undisputed descendant, Robert Todd Lincoln Beckwith. What da, da, a da. name. Um, he also 
just decided like one day he started telling people that he was the mysterious D.B. Cooper in 1972. <laughs> and again, it was like the feds were like, okay. there's literally no evidence. You don't look like him. Just because you're a con man doesn't necessarily mean that you could get away with this kind of con. Seems like he was just a little cray cray. A little lost. <laughs> so, with all of this being said, it's honestly extremely unlikely that Cooper even survived the jump. Let's be real about it. He probably didn't survive the jump, let alone be out and about walking around like living his best life after the fact. Mm-mm. It came out that law enforcement no longer believed that their suspect was an experienced paratrooper. In fact, Special Agent Larry Carr spoke on it saying, quote, We originally thought Cooper was an experienced jumper, perhaps even a paratrooper. We concluded after a few years that this simply was not true. No experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night in the rain with 172 mile per hour wind. Let me repeat that. 172 (laughs) mile per hour wind. I see now why he ditched the tie. In his face, Mm -hmm. wearing loafers and a trench coat. It was simply too risky. He also missed that his reserve parachute was only for training and had been sewn shut. Something a skilled skydiver would have checked. End quote. It should also be noted that at no point did Dan Cooper request a helmet, nor did he bring one that anybody saw. There's some belief that it could be in the brown bag, but the brown bag didn't look large enough for, like, helmets and whatnot. Right. He didn't have any of the proper protection against the weather, and he chose the older chute, which was technically inferior to the new one that you know, authorities basically hand-delivered with they a bow tied around it. shopping for him. Right. And he couldn't even be bothered to use it? Or to check through. Hmm. Yep. So all of this leads law enforcement to think that this guy was maybe a little more inept than originally given credit for. Tina does not agree with this idea, and she is adamant, or was adamant, that Cooper seemed very comfortable with the parachute supplies. For all we know, he could have had other supplies in the bag, but again, it was just a brown paper bag. Right. It was a little larger than, like, lunchbox size, right, but, but it not, was, like, humongous. I don't think it was, like, a grocery bag, like right. a grocery store bag. They gave the specific dimensions, and I was like, that does not seem that large, you yeah. know what I mean? Um, the FBI never really thought that Cooper had survived the fall, that diving in, quote, diving into wilderness without a plan, without the right equipment, in such terrible conditions, he probably never even got a shoot open, end quote. That kind of makes me chuckle, because I feel like at this point, they're just like, fuck this guy. Right. Ah. <laughs> like, I, he can fuck all the way off the right. plane. <laughs> um, the reality was that even if he did manage to safely land, he would have been in mountainous terrain at the beginning of winter, and obviously in very underwhelming yeah. mountaineering clothing. Right. I just picture <laughs> loafers, like, hiking up a mountain. <laughs> His trench coat just flying right. in the wind. <laughs> um, this would have required the help of an accomplice and for the entire plan to be executed with basically perfect synchronization. Like, and it there went, can be no mistakes or right. delays. And while it went off pretty much without a hitch, if this, you know, was the case... Let's not forget, it took longer to refuel than he had yep. originally taken and into account. And he was account. getting very anxious at that point, yes. so it's like, hmm, there's some questions there. So I definitely think that kind of lends to, if there was an accomplice, maybe, if this was the route, then there was a holdup. Right. And he was not happy about it. So since the hijacking, there have been many Cooper copycats. And this is just really, I think, 
a really good like litmus test of where we are as a society <laughs> that grown ass humans not good. not good many 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 men attempted and survived some dangerous jumps all in the name to be like cooper could have done this totally safely it's totally fine like it's i did it macho man macho man like and they also were arguing that he could have survived the conditions even in loafers and a trench coat Adding another layer of speculation to the story was a document released by F- by the FBI in 2019. This document states that there was a robbery that took place at a small grocery store within three hours of Cooper's alleged jump time. And I think that this really lends to the um, accomplice uh-huh. theory. Um, there is a small store that was located near Heisen... Heisen? I don't know how... Heisen? Heisen? Spelled H-E-I-S-S-O-N in Washington, and it was within the potential drop zone, and the only items stolen were those that could be considered survival items. It was funny. It was like gloves, a hat, beef jerky. Right. I was like, (laughs) okay, very specific needs here. So it's possible that an accomplice maybe stole them for him, or if DB did survive the jump and he managed to make it out of the mountains alive, he... Could have possibly stolen from this grocery store. Right. I don't know. Like, could be. If he did survive. If. It's an if. Because my theory is, if any of you have watched Loki on Disney+, Plus, mm. Loki, the god of mischief, is obviously D.B. Cooper. That was one of my favorite <laughs> scenes. I just busted out laughing. He basically winked at the flight attendant, leapt out of the plane, and poof. Because you know how Loki is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was my favorite thing. I actually wrote a whole email to Brie because I forgot <laughs> to include it in my original research. Well, and then one of my friends, um, my friend Rob, we used to work together, and um, we really enjoyed fucking around all the time at Starbucks together. Mm-hmm. It was fun. And he pointed that out on one of our Facebook posts, and he was like, haven't you watched it? And I was like, no. And he literally shamed me. <laughs> it's like one of the best of the Marvel series. Look, I'll tell you what I told him. I have too many streaming services as it is. I cannot justify another one. I'm trying to think of which one I can give up. <laughs> like, I'm telling you, I've I got love too much. Loki. They could make 50, 11 seasons of that, and I will watch it. I will it. say that I am familiar with Loki be thanks to Misunderstood. Yes. Because they did, after Greek and Roman mythology, they went into Norse mythology. Oh, nice. So I got to learn through that as well. Um, I know it from Marvel movies, so <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so the funny thing is about this whole thing is that if by some miracle DB is still walking this earth and he's found, he could still legally be arrested and charged with air piracy. Because it said the FBI is not act they're not putting active resources yeah. into finding oh, him. You bet your ass they but, will throw his ass in jail if they could. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Obviously the case is not closed. Just out of spite so. even. Mm-hmm. They're like, well we've looked for you for fucking ever and we hate you now. Now we're mad. Get in yourself. I don't Stay care there. if you're 75 years old. Like, deal with it. I mean, honestly, if, if we're looking at World War Two vets, yeah. like, yeah, bro. <laughs> Unless again, like the crazy bananas batshit guy when you were sixteen <laughs> when you signed up, maybe. But Oof, even that's yeah. like pushing it, you know. So yeah, so that is the unsolved case of the mysterious D.B. Cooper. I did really enjoy researching this and talking yeah. about it because I did not know a whole lot about D.B. Cooper. Not there's a whole not whole lot to know, but right. 
I knew the Loki. I knew the sketches because I've seen the sketches. Oh yeah, the sketches are. Very... I knew he jumped out of a plane supposedly, and then mm-hmm. that was all I knew. Yeah. So it's been very interesting to learn about it's it. It's interesting because also it's so like contradictory. I mm-hmm. feel like there's so many things pointing to a very well thought out and well executed plan, but there's also moments like the whole parachute thing and other you know times throughout this plan where it's like. Wait what? Where, huh. Well, also, I just feel as though, so he, for all intents and purposes, dropped into wilderness yeah. in Washington State. Yeah. What he if was flying over like, a river. Dinner, <laughs> never to be seen Right, again. and I recently learned that there is no such thing as outrunning a bear, that you are just fucked. You better hope that it loses interest in you. Well, they can climb trees and shit, yeah. too, so it's not even like you they, can go up a tree. I think the way Mark put it is they can run faster than you, they can swim faster than you, and they can climb faster than you. <laughs> I've watched videos of bears catching salmon, and that, to me, I'm like, oh my god, that's so cool, but I'm also like, ooh, is that how they catch people? Just <laughs> Probably. But my friend Michael has a thing bear don't care it, I mean, he lives out in montana those bears not do not care they don't they don't give a fuck <laughs> they don't. so that's my theory he's ba- he's been bear lunch in a cave <laughs> and the money for was a long, out by a bear or something some of it got loose mm-hmm. if he survived <laughs> i love it and on that note that's all she wrote for this episode. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. Ooh, we really 20. appreciate it. Happy 20th episode, everybody. I'm having so much fun, and uh, we're going to keep rolling on this train. Uh, and actually, if you guys are interested in getting to know us a bit more personally, stay tuned. Uh, we're going to start doing more regular installments of Don't Drink With Strangers. Uh, we kind of want to give you guys a chance to get to know us a little bit more as humans, but also don't want to, we want to try to stay on track for the episodes, mm-hmm. give you guys what you came here for originally. So we might go off on tangents here and there while we're talking, but we are adjusting things just a bit. So keep hanging out. We're going to keep doing that. Also, social media is a thing. Bobby. You can follow us, uh, the podcast on Instagram and Facebook at crime and spirits pod. And then on Twitter, for at crime spirits pod following the pod is the best way to know what the ingredients are for the upcoming episode so you can sit right along with us each week we just got added to a couple of new platforms so we're available on like seven or eight streaming services now so really trying to get out there and eventually we're going to give you guys our personal instagrams and socials and things yes. but um we're just not quite there yet yeah we're working up to it. My Instagram name is a little personal, and I would like to change it before I start giving yep, yeah, all of well, you guys my information. <laughs> None of that. So, yeah. Thanks so much. We love you. Bye. Bye.